Dissonance Media and the Other Stories presents Step into the abyss of After the Gloaming, a gothic fiction podcast that delves into the depths of human emotion, unyielding love, revenge, internal struggles, and restless souls await you in nine haunting episodes where dread, fear, and rare glimpses of eerie happiness linger. Dare to listen on your favourite podcatcher? After the gloaming beckons, search now, but beware, innocence will be left behind. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. These aren't the stories your mother told you. No, these are the other stories. Today's episode of The Other Stories is The Balloon, written by Benjamin Percy and narrated by Justin Fife. (coughs) The sickness begins with a cough, a needling itch at the back of your throat that grows worse until it feels like your lungs are sleeved with burrowing ants that you must expel, barking raggedly into your hands until they are spotted with blood. Accompanying this is a fever so powerful that a wet washcloth steams when placed on your forehead. Your brain cooks. Your vision twirls red. And all this time, you are coughing. Coughing until it feels as though your guts might uproot and push out your throat. Among the people of River Falls, Oregon, its first victim is Jeff Meyer, a roofer with terry fingers, a bowed back, and a lopping gait from all his time spent cobbling shingles together, clambering across gables and hips and valleys. One day, he comes home from work hacking into his fist, and when his wife asks him if he's all right, he nods through his coughing and pushes past her into the bathroom, where he runs a hot shower and curls up at the bottom of the tub, hoping the steam will help but his chest continues to convulse, 
His throat continues to scream, and eventually his wife comes to check on him. And by that time, the water has gone cold, and she is in a panic, shaking him, taking in big gulps of the air that he has infected, calling out, Sarah, Sarah, come, you've got to come. Sarah, their daughter, is densely built, mostly torso with tiny, delicate feet. When she goes out to eat, she orders chicken fingers, Philly cheesesteak sandwiches, iceberg lettuce salads drenched in western dressing. She is in her 30s, but still lives with her parents, in a room that had not changed much since she was in high school. The same posters, the same stained purple carpet, the same fantasy novels lining her bookshelves, the same white wicker hamper overflowing with sweatshirts and jeans, the same comforter with a shaggy maned unicorn on it. She has a four-poster bed, and to each post she ties a balloon. She has been doing this ever since she received the bed as a gift on her 16th birthday. When she climbs under the covers every night, she likes to imagine she is floating away, out the window, into the night sky, above the moonlit table of clouds where dreams wait for her. She refreshes the balloons every week when they begin to wilt. Her desk, situated beneath a window, was her mother's old sewing table. She rests her feet on the ironwork pedal when she sits there and scribbles in composition booklets, crafting stories about princesses. Not the kind who fall asleep from cursed spindles or poisoned apples, but the kind with golden armor and a sword called Oathmaker that can slay dragons and lop off troll heads in a single swing. She writes so often that the desktop carries the design of a half-formed triangle from the oils of her arms. People often say to her, Sarah, you there? And when she smiles and nods, they say, for a second, you seem to be someplace else. She works as a receptionist at Greeley Chiropractic, answering phones through a headset, greeting every patient by name, arranging the magazines in the shape of a fan on the glass top table in the waiting area, refilling the triangle paper cup dispenser for the water cooler that burps every time someone gets a drink, until her father and then her mother fall ill, and she takes her vacation time to nurse them. She brews tea, helps them back and forth to the bathroom, packs bags of ice into their armpits and elbows, around their necks, over their wrists, and then refills the bags when they melt into warm-bellied jellyfish that slosh and roll off her parents' bodies when a coughing fit seizes them. Sarah goes to Walgreens to buy cough syrup and cough drops and ibuprofen and cold packs. She goes to Food for Less to buy chicken soup and chamomile tea. She goes to the gas station to fill up her hatchback. She has not washed her hands. Her fingers are sticky with the spit and sweat of her parents. Everywhere she goes, so does the infection. On the cart with the wobby wheels, she pushes the apples she fondles and then replaces in her bin. And the $20 bill she pulls from her purse. The counter she taps as she waits for her receipt. It isn't long before the hospitals are full, before the schools are closed, before the sidewalks grow crowded with reporters. Three people die. And then, in one night... 300. Everyone rushes the grocery stores and pulls off the shelves cereals, pastas, granola bars, canned fruits and vegetables, bottled water, whatever will last even after the electricity snaps off. The worst is happening, they are saying. The worst is here. 
When parents say, you'll catch your death, they mean it, grabbing their children as they race out the door to hand them a jacket, yes, but also a surgical mask. Stay in the yard, they say. Don't breathe, they want to say. Sarah imagines the sickness as the puffy spores that float off a dandelion or the cloth-winged moths that swarm the lamps in the Walmart parking lot, and she keeps her eyes sharp on the air around her, as if she could see the sickness coming, maybe dodge it. This is October, and the leaves on the aspen and cottonwoods turn a shimmering gold and come loose from their branches. You can see the shape of the wind in them, the leaves that wend and eddy in the streets, lawns, ballparks, making a skittering, clattering music like skeletons softly dancing. Everyone buys masks, not just surgical masks because the stores go empty of them almost immediately, but carpenter's masks, gas masks, even Halloween masks, anything to choke away the germs. Hank Haynes is balding. What little hair he has left is a frizzy black halo. His thighs rub together when he walks and he can fit his fist into his belly button. He works as a deputy sheriff in Deschutes County. Most of his days are spent in a rust-speckled squad car parked behind a pine windbreak. He waits for speeders to hurl by as he aims his radar gun out the window and imagines it into a rifle that would take out the tires of a Mustang with 10 kilos of black tar heroin in the trunk. His real gun, a Glock 35, he has never actually drawn, though he dreams of doing so every day. He has always imagined himself a hero, not for anything he has done, but for what he is capable of doing. When he stands in line at the credit union, he knows exactly how he will react when the robbers and black ski masks rush in and say, anybody moves and you're dead meat. When the children bumble too close to the road, he carefully eyes them and readies to rush out and snatch them from the path of an oncoming semi. He always sits at the back of restaurants facing the door, ready for the unexpected. His entire life, is made up of moments like this, sewn together like a bunch of hypothetical merit badges. When he was a boy, Hank was constantly afraid. He would run past the graveyard on his way home from school. He would sleep with his desk lamp glowing all night. He would wrap his sheets around him tightly, a blowhole the only part of him exposed. One night, he was so convinced that a pale, skinless creature waited for him under his bed, ready to seize his ankle with a long-fingered hand, that he held his bladder until he pissed himself and lay in his bed whimpering until the morning when his mother found him. He would never tell anybody this, God forbid, but he always felt a little jealous of Rapunzel because she was safe. No one could get to her, and no one expected anything of her. If he was her... He would have cut off all that hair and call it good. Now, the old fears are washing over him again. He sits in a squad car, windows sealing him in in a protective bubble. He imagines the ground rumbling beneath him and knuckling upward into a spire, higher and higher still until he is balanced 200 feet in the air. Crown Vic will become his tower, and there he can wait all this out, because people want him to do something but he doesn't know what. He watches the car stream out of River Falls. Occasionally, he flashes his lights at speeders, but doesn't pull anyone over for fear that they are sick. He buys a gas mask from the army surplus and wears it at all times except when sleeping. 
Sometimes, when he hears the radio squawk and the dispatcher call out his name, he wants to snap it off, afraid of what he might be asked to do, ashamed that he hasn't changed at all, that he is still that boy in the piss-soaked frog pajamas. Hank remembers what his high school counselor once told him. To control his fears, he must control his breathing, to imagine the air around him as a humored essence. What was his favorite fruit? Peaches? He loved canned peaches. And what was the color of illness? Green. That's the color people turn in cartoons when they felt sour in the guts, wobbly neat. Good, the counselor told him. Now, imagine those colors moving in and out of your body. Breathe in, peach. Breathe out, green. Peach in, green out. All the ugly feelings will leave him, making room for the good, purifying him. And now, with his gas mask snugly fit around his face, as long as he thinks about his breathing, as long as he controls what goes in and out of him, he is hopeful he is safe. In with the peach, out with the green. Take Sarah's parents five days to die. During that time, their chests seem to collapse inwards with every hitching cough. Their throats rasp, their lips bruise. The blood vessels in their eyes burst and they weep blood. And because they are propped up on their pillows, the blood runs down their cheeks and paths that seem raked by claws. The doctor prescribes medicine, but it does not help. When they die within hours of each other, their bodies go slack. The sudden silence makes the air feel brittle. In a kind of trance, Sarah stumbles into the kitchen to turn on the radio for the noise, something to distract her from what has happened, then kills it when the music breaks for an update on the sickness that the scientists are now calling H3L1, or Hell, the nickname goes. A Budweiser delivery truck pulls up to Food for Less, and an hour later pulls away. A greyhound grumbles back and forth to Portland, its tailpipe coughing along with its grey-faced passengers. A charter plane, a station wagon, a bicyclist passing through his way across the state, and all those letters licked shut. The sickness spreads. However many hundred become, however many thousand become, however many million in a matter of days, there isn't time for quarantine. There's barely enough time to utter the word pandemic. And by then, the sickness has extended across the state, the country, the continent, the world. There is no difference between good and bad, young and old, not that the sickness recognizes. Everyone is eligible for death. For a few days, the world blames River Falls, calling it Ground Zero so that the town feels like the eye of a black whirlpool with clotted lungs and broken bones swirling through it. And in turn, River Falls blames Sarah's family. It feels good to have someone to blame. They gather together on the sidewalks and in the pews of the churches, speaking hoarsely to one another, peppermints and cough drops clicking between their teeth. When they talk, they look in the direction of her house the brick ranch with its shades pulled and its lawn busy with weeds, and they whisper terrible things about the Myers. Damn them for what they've done, 
and damn Sarah for not falling ill like the rest of them. What is she, some kind of witch? Is this the devil's business then? Sarah keeps waiting for the sickness to take her. She plugs a thermometer into her mouth every hour on the hour. She pays close attention to her throat, waiting for the itching, and every now and then gives a tentative cough just to see what will happen. One afternoon, when she drives to the grocery store to fill her pantry, as the television advises, a half dozen people rush her in the parking lot. They wear masks and grab her wrists and pull at her clothes. Thanks, they say. Thanks a lot. They've run out of coffins. Did you hear that, Sarah? These are voices she knows. From school, from work, from the neighborhood. Voices muffled by masks and soured with venom. A woman in a bird mask says, Look what you've done! This is Maggie Meyerhofer, whose eyes are startled blue and stare out from holes in her mask. And then a man, Chuck Wilson, who came into the chiropractor regularly with lower back pain and who always wore flannel shirts, even in the height of summer, and whose face is now hidden by a zombie mask with an eyeball hanging from a socket, says, Why aren't you dead? Why aren't you dying? His voice is overrun by that of a girl Sarah went to high school with, Lauren Stott, who snatches a fistful of Sarah's hair to bring her close and to whisper harshly, My boy is dead because of you. Her head is encased in a yellow rubber ball with a smiley face printed across it. Their mouths are like dark furnaces. The words come between coughs, struggling to be heard. I'm sorry, Sarah says. She doesn't know what else to say except, leave me alone, when a voice yells over all the other voices to say that maybe her blood is an elixir, that maybe if they drink it, they will be cured. She wishes she had her sword oathmaker not to hurt them, merely to show them. All she would need to do is slide the blade from its scabbard, and its steel would glow and its keen edge would sing when she would swing it one way, then the other, and they would shrink away from her. Their eyes are sunken, their skin the gray of rotting fence posts. (coughs) They cough at her, yes, at her, trying to infect her, despite what they already know that she can't be infected, that she will outlive them all. As she rushes back to her car, they chase her and yell after her as if their words are pliers and hammers and duct tape, instruments of torture, tools that might interpret their rage and helplessness. Hank has spent most of his life waiting for trouble, and now that trouble has found him, he isn't quite sure what to do with it. He drives the streets of town. He spots a corpse on a porch swing, another in a park, a woman splayed out in the shape of an X as if she has fallen from a building that isn't there. A man runs by carrying a television set. Fire rises from a roof of a two-story Victorian and a column of smoke rises from the fire, hazing into the far reaches of the sky. He drives by all of this and stops only when he sees something manageable, seemingly safe. An old woman lugging a 20-pound sack of rice. She wears a gray cotton sweatsuit and a surgical mask. White hair spills down to her shoulders. She takes small, shuffling steps, clutching the bag of rice to her chest, leaning backwards at the hips to manage the weight. He pulls up alongside her and says, Can I give you a ride, ma'am? 
His voice sounds hollow and foreign inside the gas mask. No, she says without looking at him. The wind rises and leaves shiver. Can I help you carry that bag then? She turns away from him and cries over her shoulder. It's mine! Don't touch it! He is getting out of his car at this point, walking toward her. You look like you could use some... She drops the bag of rice, and it hits the cement with a thud. I said it's mine! It's mine! It's mine! With the final mine, she claws at his outstretched hand, and the skin along the back of it comes away and curls like a clumsily peeled apple. Ah, oh, Jesus Christ, lady! She hoists up the bag of rice and continues to hobble home. He returns to the squad car and slathers the wound with ointment, then wraps it in gauze from the first aid kit. Peach in. Green out. That's what he keeps saying to himself. Peach in. Green out. He has always taken pride in his ability to act, at least in his mind, which is like a scroll of blank comic panels. He would walk a few steps forward and sketch in a scene where maybe he speared to death a tentacle monster or carried in his arms a buxom woman. Somewhere in a panel in the far distance, he is galloping on a white horse or standing on top of a building silhouetted by the moon, cape flapping. But now the panels seem torn and pitted, and the drawings he imagines upon them are done sloppily in crayon. His radio is silent. The police station is empty except for a dead man in a holding cell, his cheek glued to a bloody pool of vomit. No one asks Hank to do anything, so he doesn't do anything. Doesn't protest the looting, doesn't investigate the intermittent gunfire. Instead, he drives to his cabin in the woods to hide. At a time when everyone should stay home, that's what the television says before the channels give way to static, stay home people instead go to church, at St. Cecilia's and at Trinity Lutheran and at the United Methodist. People wander in and out throughout the day. The services and vigils are ongoing. The candles are burned down to bubbling nubs of wax. Everyone wears their masks, but the masks don't help. They breathe one another's breath, and they bring their hands together in prayer, and they sing. How sweet the sound until the coughing overwhelms them and they hunch over and fall to their knees in awful genuflection. Sarah's fridge is nearly empty, her cupboard too. She cuts the moldy rind off a brick of cheddar and eats its untouched heart. She eats the olives her mother used for her martinis, even though she hates their bitter taste. And then she lies in her bed, the bed with the balloons tied to its four posts, where she always feels safest. When she was 18, she painted the ceiling a pale blue, scattered with fluffy white clouds. She does not imagine it as the sky outside her house, but another sky, another world, where the sun shines, and she rules with mercy from a castle with towers fluttering with pennants and walls decorated with the scales of all the dragons she has slain. The mural gives her such a sense of space, of outward possibility. The balloons will take her there, away, Dogs roam in packs. They race in and out of abandoned houses, burrowing through the trash and cupboards unmolested, gnawing on the bloated corpses found hunched over dining room tables and floating in bathtubs full of cold, rank water. The dogs sleep on couches and on beds, their bodies piled together, fat and filthy. Their howls fill the night like an air raid siren. 
One day, Sarah wanders outside, climbing up the porches of her neighbor's houses to ring doorbells, calling out, Anybody? Her father was part of the regional softball team, and she carries his bat with her, imagining it as her sword, Oathmaker. There's nothing left in her kitchen now but a half-sleeve of rice cakes and a few mucky knife swipes of peanut butter in a jar. She does not feel sad. She feels completely blank. The day is windy. Newspapers flutter. Beer cans rattle. Sarah wanders into the park and climbs onto a swing and absently kicks her legs. This is where the dogs find her. There are ten of them. Labradors and Boxers and Dobermans and German Shepherds. Even a golden doodle. They slink toward her with their ears and tails flattened. She stands from the swing and snatches up the softball bat and tightens her grip and brings it to her shoulder and says like a teary prayer, I am the knight and you are the dragons. Hank sits on his porch with his glock in his lap. He is certain someone will come when he least expects it, when his back is turned. Someone will come creeping out of the woods to try to pry the lock off his door or rip the mask from his face. He startles often at his shadow, his reflection in the mirror, a stranger in a gas mask. To stay awake, he chews no-dos and sucks on coffee beans and drinks cans of warm Mountain Dew. Sometimes he isn't sure whether he's awake or asleep or somewhere in between, the world warping along the edges. He is certain only about sitting still, waiting, and watching for endless hours. This is his tower. He will defend his tower. His vision of the world is limited to a half acre of meadow, the woods surrounding it, and the red cinder driveway that cuts through them both. He watches the clouds, and he watches their shadows shift and ooze across the ground. Every now and then, in the near distance, he hears a shotgun blast, or a dog bark, or a car race along the highway. Once, he hears someone screaming, whether at someone else or at the universe. Days pass slowly, but not as slowly as nights. When the shadows play tricks with his mind, the stars seem to him like vanishing atoms of the earth as it crumbles to pieces and floats away. He glances often at his watch, waiting for what he doesn't know. Time has already run out for the world, and for any chance of redemption on his part. He is pathetic. The fact that few are left to witness his cowardice is at least comforting. He is not a knight, not a gunslinger, not a kung fu master or spandex-clad metahuman. He's the cat on a limb they rescue. The child crying help from the flame-filled building. The princess in the tower. He sings to himself quietly, but he can remember only fragments of lyrics, so he slips from one song to another like somebody cycling through radio stations. Christmas carols, he knows. For a while, all he sings are Christmas carols. The air grows cold. The days grow short. The ragweed and the sagebrush grow brittle. The pine trees shake off their brown needles. Mornings, the trees and grass sparkle with frost. The sky is a dark blue, tangled with cirrus clouds that resemble a torn-up spiderweb. Halloween passes without anyone knowing it, though in the seeming spirit of the season all wear their masks. The wolfman peering from a kitchen window. Frankenstein's monster digging a grave in his backyard. Dracula sitting behind the wheel of a pickup that drives up and down the streets, looking for signs of life. The power goes out. 
One minute refrigerators are humming, stereos playing, lamps glowing, and the next, they go dark and silent. Those who are still alive bring matches to sternos and spark on their propane grills to cook. The growl of chainsaws fills the air as some take down the trees along the curbs and the parks, sectioning them up into logs they can split into firewood to stay warm. So many homes have black X's spray-painted across their doors, the hieroglyphs of the infected, most of whom are already dead. All the store windows have been broken by the bricks of looters, and in the evening, the glass catches the last of the dying sunlight and winks red. Sarah has lost 20 pounds. For breakfast, she has two crackers and some water. She needs to venture out again to get food, wood, supplies for the coming winter. She still has bite and scratch marks reddening her body from the dogs, but she fought them off, and it makes her feel a little braver now. She fetches her softball bat, Oathmaker. Pulls open her garage door, and there they are, maybe 20 of them. The figures are wearing masks, and they are scattered across the driveway and the lawn and the sidewalks and the street, all still as statues. She feels her expression shift along with her heart as she feels confusion and then recognition and then horror. A trembling runs through her body and then her voice when she says, What do you want? They don't know what they have come for except to lash out at something. But maybe seeing her now makes them realize she isn't what they're looking for after all. The world's starting over and you have a choice, she says and she's proud of the steel in her voice. You get to choose what you'll be. I'm going to choose hope. I hope you will too. Slowly, she pulls down the garage door. None of the masked figures make a move to stop her. Up in the foothills of the Cascade Mountains, there is a cave a hundred yards deep. Several families gather their rifles and sleeping bags and fill their backpacks with matches and food and clothes for all seasons and hike there to wait out the sickness. They choose the cave because it is isolated, easily defended, and maybe they choose it too because they feel already as though they are slipping back in history to a simpler time dedicated to the gathering of food and warding off of danger. They make a fire the first night, and with the cinders of it draw upon the basalt walls and pictures of bodies laying all about with black X's for eyes, a cipher for future generations to behold and puzzle over. It is colder in the cave than they imagined, and on the third day, one of their party sneaks down to the town for blankets and coats, and by the time he returns, he is coughing, and soon they are all dead. A hard rain comes, it falls through the broken windows and soaks carpets. It dimples the fresh earth of the graves dug all over town. At Sarah's house, it tongues its way under a loose shingle and seeps through the insulation and the ceiling beneath it to form a damp circle that sags downwards. Her skyscape mural, the illusion of another world, is ruined. She paces her room, running her hands through her hair and chewing her fingernails down to nubs, feeling starved, and alone, utterly alone, trapped as if in the dungeon of an evil sorcerer. It is something she has fantasized about before, something she has written about in her stories. In one of them, she gnaws off her finger and uses the bone to pick the lock 
and then hurls the sorcerer from a window as lightning crackles from his hands. In another, she writes a note in blood and tucks it under the wing of a raven who flies it to the giant bears who live in the dire forest, and they come charging across the plains to burrow beneath the castle and into her cell, and they splinter the door and overthrow the sorcerer and feast on his magical flesh and take on his powers as she becomes their queen, the queen of the bears. But things are not so easy or so fun here in River Falls. Every time she tries to leave her house, she's attacked. She might as well be guarded by wraiths or surrounded by enchanted brambles. She's always read her way out of this world. Her story will not end happily ever after unless she authors it herself. She pulls up a chair to her desk and rips a page from a composition booklet. She grips a pen in her hand so tightly her knuckles go white. I'm alive and I'm alone, she writes and then stops the pen. What else can she share? What else is there? Her mind is slower than it used to be, walled off from interaction, any activity outside of peering out the window, talking to herself. I'm not sick. She underlines this twice. Sometimes I wish I were, but I'm not. If you're alive, if you're reading this, Maybe you know what I mean. I don't need you to rescue me. I'm not looking for heroes. But I sure could use some company. Because this is a lonely battle. Come find me. She lists her address, signs her name, and she finishes the note the way she has finished every story she has ever written. Happily ever after? That's what she writes along the bottom the way some would write regards or all the best or love, only followed by a question mark. There are so many shadows in the world and so little light ahead, but writing this makes her feel a little better, hopeful. She rolls up a sheet of paper like a scroll, tapes it shut. She then stands from the desk and selects from one of the bedposts the balloon that will most likely catch someone's attention, a red balloon shaped like a heart. She bought it at Walgreens, it's a few weeks old and flaccid, but it will have to do. To its string, she tapes the note several times over. She goes down the hall to the living room and peers through the curtains for a minute, watching the wind shake the pine tree growing along the curb, before trusting the street to be empty. She opens the door and steps out onto the porch. She holds out the balloon and scrunches shut her eyes and makes a wish and lets go. Once, when he was a boy, Hank found a bald eagle shot dead in the woods. He couldn't imagine anyone shooting an eagle, but there it was. A hole blasted through its middle, its feathers scorched, one of its wings still outstretched with the hope of flight. He spent a lot of time in the woods, imagining pine cones into grenades, firing slingshots at jackrabbits, hammering together forts from lumber stolen from construction sites, and he would run across the eagle often. Ants and flies stripped it of its guts and muscle. Its feathers faded and moldered and came loose, lost to the rain and wind, so that there was only the skeleton. Mud and crabgrass filled its hollows and eventually took it over so entirely that in time, Hank was unable to make out any sign of it. He figured that was how he would end up, how people would end up, erased completely. The world would move on. 
He has never felt small or less substantial. He doesn't even bother with his breathing exercises anymore. There is no peach to breathe in. The whole world has gone green. Just then he sees something. Something red. It floats along the tree line, rising with an updraft, clearing the branches that threaten to snatch it. A cross current knocks it towards the meadow that surrounds his cabin, towards his porch, where it comes twisting, bullied by the wind, dropping suddenly toward him. He sets down his pistol and rips off his gas mask. He is smiling. He is holding out his arms. One moment the balloon seems to jerk upward, and the next he is impossibly grabbing it by the string, as if time skips. He pulls the balloon against his body, nearly crushing it in the hug. He looks at the balloon, and then at the sky, and then at the balloon, and laughs. He looks around, startled by the sound so alien. It takes him a moment to spot the note. It is only after he unpeels it, after he reads the message, after a smile splits his face and fresh laughter escapes from his throat, that the possibility of a future begins to open back up for him. That he begins to think maybe, just maybe, he can set off for town. With his pistol ready and his eyes narrowed for danger, he can escape his tower. He can seek out this Sarah, and maybe together they can be brave. They can find hope. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Other Stories. The Balloon was written by Benjamin Percy, narrated by Justin Fife, edited by Carl Hughes, with music by Tim Kulig and Tom Robson, and the sound effect provided by freesound.org. The episode illustration was provided by Luke Spooner of Carry On House. A quick thanks to our community managers, Joshua Boucher and Jasmine Arch, and to Joshua Boucher and Carolyn O'Brien for helping with our submission reading. And of course to Ben Errington for the ongoing explosion of content he fires out of his social media canon. Benjamin Percy is a novelist, comics writer, and screenwriter. He writes Wolverine, X-Force, and Ghost Rider for Marvel Comics, and his latest novel, The Sky Vault, releases in September of 2023. For more, head over to benjaminpercy.com. Justin Fife is a voice actor and podcaster. You can follow him on Twitter at, at JustinB5. Give Stories is a production of the story studio Hawk and Cleaver, and is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. That means don't change it, don't sell it, but by all means, share the hell out of it. Until next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.